0: A couple of things, Um, uh, first of all, in two weeks I think we'll be live with a new blog, I'll be writing uh, posts on that, you can uh, access that on our church website, keystonechurch.org, it's going to be called Envoy, and you can go on there uh, once we're live and subscribe so that you can get uh, access to articles on missions and uh, disciple making and related things and uh, hope that that will be of some benefit to you. Um, I wanna say thanks again to the mission agency representatives that are here today. And uh, even if you're not um, really contemplating going to the ends of the earth as, a, as a, a global worker, don't walk by them and look dead ahead fearful that they'll ambush you and try to get you to do that. That's not what they're here for. In fact. Uh, Just to give you a little testimony, my wife and I were uh, visiting a seminary, which I ended up going to, and um, we happened to be there for a mission conference, and we were so discouraged. Something, I don't remember what, but something had happened before we went, and it looked like we weren't going to be able to afford to go to seminary. Uh, There was some financial issue. And... uh, we probably should have canceled the trip, but we went and we just really down in the dumps and we thought we knew what God had planned for us and now we're thinking apparently we didn't. And so we had the morning session in chapel and we were sitting at a little table at the cafe on campus <clears throat> and um, there weren't a lot of tables and one of the mission reps was, uh, came through and he said, can I, can I sit at your table? I said, sure. Well, that turned into about a two and a half hour conversation as uh, we got acquainted with him and he got acquainted with us found out a little bit what we were struggling with and just ministered to us for those two hours and so impactfully changed not only our perspective on what was happening but our perspective on God It, it was so impactful to us that we ended up becoming supporters of theirs for the next 25 years and so you never know what kind of uh, conversation you might have with another brother or sister that's here uh, to recruit global workers, but they care about you because they love Jesus, and you should care about them because you love Jesus as well. So encourage you to um, take the time to strike up some conversations after the service today before you go to dinner or home. Well, I hope you... Um, Got the memo and the reminder that we sent out on Monday about Mission Summit. Encourage you to bring a paper Bible along today because the verses are not going to be up on the screen. And um, uh, just my, my desire is to see us mark up our Bibles and look at them then months down the road and even years down the road and be reminded about the, the things that we heard a certain time or the things that we jotted down. And so if you have a paper Bible along I encourage you to open it to Matthew 28 a while this morning. The title of my message is, What Kind of Christians Will Your Children Be? And last night, we talked about what kind of church will your uh, children have in, in the future. And by the way, if you missed last night and you'd like to see that, we did record it. Uh, it's videotaped. If you'd like to see it, you can send me an email. I'll give you a password to get access to it. Uh, we, want to talk, we talked a little more freely last night than we would have uh, wanted to with a live stream going. Same with tonight's service as well. Even before I became a pastor, I knew that there was a common complaint that marked most youth, most youth pastors. And that was that they, they perceived that all the parents, of a lot of their students anyway, all they really wanted out of the youth ministry was keep their kids away from drugs and alcohol and pregnancy. And, and in some ways, that's a really low bar, right? There's a whole lot more that we would want to see in the lives of young people than that, who are, we're hoping to come to know Jesus, and we're hoping for a lot more than that. Uh, on the other hand, it's kind of really a really high bar to look to the youth ministry and say, We expect you uh, to do what really should be our responsibility as, as parents. I have more confidence. In all of you parents, than that. I think of uh, greater aspirations for you, for your children. And if I were to sit down and ask you parents, what do you really want your kids to become as they grow up and hopefully and prayerfully come to follow Jesus, what, what you're looking for? You're probably looking for uh, kids who are going to notice the needs in others and try to help them. You're going to hope that they are grow up to be kind people. You're going to hope that they grow up to be generous. But what is it as you you think about your your children and maybe you've got teens already or maybe you've got young adults or maybe you've got two-year-olds. As as you think about those children and hopefully they come to know Jesus Christ, what is it that's going to set them apart from unbelievers who are pretty good people? They're moral people. they They have the same kinds of interests in people who are needy that your kids will. They have the same kind of kindness. They have the same kind of generosity. What is it that's going to set them apart and make them distinct and make them different? And I want to give you two answers to that question this morning. A gospel assurance and a gospel assignment. That we who follow Jesus Christ, what sets us apart from other people who are nice people, who are good people, is that we have a gospel assurance and we have a gospel assignment. By gospel assurance, I mean that we believe we are saved from uh, our sins by Christ. We're saved from our sins by Christ. But that gospel assignment is just as important as the gospel assurance. And that is that we are saved to make disciples by Christ, for Christ, saved to make disciples for Christ. Now, the theme of our weekend is that legacies are unavoidable. We talked last night about the legacy that a church leaves for their children, for the next generation. And this morning, we want to talk about the legacy that you and I, as older adults, I don't mean old like me, I mean parents, parents, what we are going to leave to our children. And what I mean by that is will the convictions and the values that we hold be the ones that our children end up holding? Are the ones that we hold, this is an even more important question, are the ones that we hold the ones that Jesus gave us? Are the values and convictions that you and I hold, are they the ones that Jesus gave us? Are we living out those values? Are we living out those convictions that Jesus gave us? Now, the direction of this weekend came as the result of two conversations I had back in early July. I was on the phone one day with a representative from a mission organization And in the course of our conversation, he said to me, he said, we were talking about disciple-making, and he said, hardly anyone who comes to our agency these days and wants to make disciples someplace else around the world has been making disciples in their own backyard. They want to go over there and do that, but they really haven't been doing it at home. And I thought, wow kind of even scary for the whole mission enterprise. About 24 hours later, I got a call from a friend who serves uh, as a a gospel worker in a closed country. And in the course of our conversation, we were talking again about disciple-making. And he said, of all the workers here in this country that I've met since I've been here, he said, I always ask them the same question. Have you had a gospel conversation from someone in this country where you took them from step A to B. In other words, it might not be the whole plan of salvation. It might be step one, trying to help them understand that they they have a disease that everybody on the planet has or maybe introducing them to Isa. Just you've gone from step A to step B with them. And he said, I have yet to have one worker answer yes to that question. And for the rest of that week, I I couldn't get these two conversations out of my mind. I'm like, how can that be that we're sending people to the other side of the globe and around the world to make disciples, and, and yet it doesn't seem like people are making disciples here before they go, and even when they do go, some of them aren't making disciples now that they're there. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized I wasn't looking at a mission problem, I was looking at a local church problem. Be, because where did those people come from? Who, who, who sent them? And I, I came to this conclusion that Christian missionaries come from the pool of people in the local church who are mission Christians that Christian missionaries come from the pool of people in any local church who are mission Christians. And what I mean by that is not only people who support global missions, but that they are convinced that Jesus gave them, not just the people who are going overseas, that, that, that God gave them, Jesus gave them a mission as well. And that is to make disciples, no matter where we live, no matter where we are. And so this morning, I want to try to make this case to all of us that we who follow Jesus have been given marching orders by Jesus Christ. And those marching orders are to make disciples where we're at. To make disciples where we're at. That's true of your spouse, that's true of your care group members, it's true of me. It's true of you. Let's pray because we desperately need it before we get into the scriptures we're going to look at this morning. There's a lot of things, Father, that we are busy doing, and most of them are good things. But I know as I've been wrestling these last number of years, am I doing what Jesus told me to do? Or is it even on my radar when I'm in the presence of people who don't know Jesus that, oh yeah, wherever I'm at, I'm to be on duty for Jesus as a disciple-maker. The things that are preoccupying me when I'm away at some event, does it even cross my mind that there are folks here who don't know Jesus and that maybe he could use me to take them from step A to step B or just to ask them some questions to open up some doors? And I confess, Lord, this has not marked my life. And I confess that though I know the scriptures, I have not always been obedient. And knowing that, I suspect that there are many in this room who also wrestle with the same thing. Or worse, we don't even think about it. No preacher can change another life. No speaker, no either brother or sister in Christ can change anyone else. We can only change ourselves as you change us. We can only make alterations to how we think and what we do if the Spirit of God blows through in conviction, and the power to change. And that's my prayer this morning. I pray that your words would be heard, mine forgotten, you would be exalted, we would be helped and impacted for the glory of Christ and the cause, his cause, among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 28, the final verses of that book. Probably familiar to most of you, you've been a Christian any length of time. And Jesus said this to his disciples right before he went back to heaven after he had risen from the dead. We're going to ask ourselves two questions this morning as we look at several texts. And that is, what is the assignment? What is the assignment that Jesus has given us? And then secondly, who's that assignment been given to? So let's read these verses, beginning verse 18, Matthew 28. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, in other words, there's a connection there to the authority that Jesus has received from his father. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations or really all people groups since national boundaries change all the time. Make disciples of all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In other words, you're not on your own. What is the assignment? Right out of the gate, he says, go. That's the very first word that sounds like a command. Go, and as you go, make Jesus followers of all the people groups, all the nations. And so if this is about people groups like the Turks or the Ansari people or the Brahmins or the Tutsis, then this is a missionary assignment, right? It it only applies to people who are selling everything they have and they're moving somewhere else than they currently live saying goodbye to their families, saying goodbye to their cultures, saying goodbye to their, to their streets, to their homes, maybe even to a lot of, lot of their possessions, and living somewhere else, maybe for the rest of their lives. Only applies to them. Surely this is a missionary text. Go. But isn't it true that no matter where we live, we're always going somewhere? We're going to a movie, we're going to a concert, we're going to school, we're going to work, we're going out on a date, uh, we're going to school, we're, we're going to the store. Jesus didn't specifically say here, go as in go around the world. He simply said, go. And furthermore, the word go is really not the main event of this command. It, like And hang on here, I know you don't like grammar, but it, along with the words baptize and teach, they're all participles. Y'all remember what participles are, right? right? Take a verb and hang I-N-G on the back end of it. That's mostly what participles are. So going, baptizing, teaching. And they usually modify either a noun or a verb. In other words, they're not the main event. They're pointing to something that is the main event. There's only one verb in this text that's an imperative, that's a command, and that is the verb, anybody want to guess? Make, make disciples, make disciples. That's the only verb in this text that is a command. Jesus says, make disciples. How do you make disciples or what kind of disciples you make? You you, you make them as you're going. And then the kind you're making are baptized disciples and taught disciples. Now, my guess is that every genuine Christian here believes in this great commission that we usually call it. That we're to make baptized and taught disciples. Or at least somebody is. Perhaps where we might divide is the question over who is this for? Who was Jesus talking to when he gave this command? Is he just for missionaries who do go across the sea? Is it just the original disciples he was talking to on this day, the apostles, men who became the first missionaries? Before we try to answer that question, let's make sure we have uh, one important feature nailed down, namely what in the world is disciple making? What does it mean to make disciples? We might be assuming too much to assume we all agree on what that means. Does it mean evangelism, that is telling unbelievers about Jesus? Uh, Does it mean helping immature Christians become more mature It's interesting that we even have this kind of division in disciple-making. So we think about evangelism oftentimes over here and discipleship, this process of a a less uh, mature Christian becoming more mature. So we usually use those two different words, evangelism and discipleship. But the word disciple-making is a single word in the Greek language that this Bible was originally written in. I've came across this a number of months ago, and I'm still trying to find primary sources for, but a number of sources have referenced this man's name. A guy by the name of Charles Adams, back in 1850, was the first one supposedly who took this single word of disciple-making and tore it into two pieces. That that it is a process in which uh, we tell people about Jesus... And then those who come to faith in Christ, we help them grow. We help them start this new life, this this journey of faith in Christ. And it's interesting um, for me to have come across this in the last few months because in the last few years, I've been pondering this. Uh, I've had a lot of conversations in the last year and a half uh, with Christians and other pastors as well as missionaries. And increasingly have have come to realize that the vast majority—I think this is true—the vast majority of Christians think about disciple making primarily in this uh, focused on this side of the of the fence, so to speak, of helping people become more mature Christians, or even helping myself become a more mature Christian. I'm, I'm discipling myself. I'm growing in Christ. The problem is when we have divided a word that Jesus never intended to be divided, most of us prefer to think about our role in our participation in, on this side of the fence because in, in most cases, we're dealing with people who want to grow in the Lord as opposed to this crowd over here who we might face some opposition from. They might not be receptive to hearing what we have to say regarding the gospel. I was talking to a sister uh, last week or the week before about her sharing the gospel with people. She said, I've lost friends over this. They don't want to hear what I have to say. But, she said, this is still Jesus' call in my life. Do, do, Do you see what I'm getting at? What if Jesus never gave me the option to just work with people that are going to be receptive to what I have to say and help them grow in Christ and that Jesus actually intended for me to also be a participant in this responsibility over here of helping the lost be found and risk, risking opposition, resist uh, p- potential pushback And and maybe someone's going to shut me off and maybe someone's going to say bad things about me to other people. That Jesus says, nonetheless, this is what I want you to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is why I left you here. What if that's the case? The reality is if I like chocolate chip cookies if any of you want to make me some. But the reality is if you're going to make a cookie, you have to make it before you can improve it. Right? You have to make it before you can improve it. So if you're going to make a batch of cookies, you get the raw materials together, you get the egg and the flour and the and the extract, I make it sound like I know what I'm talking about. The chocolate chips, sugar, and more sugar, and flour. And then you, you mold them and you put them in the pan and you slide them in, in the oven and then you bring them out and now you have a cookie. You can't improve the cookie without making the cookie. In the same way, we can't make disciples without starting with a new disciple. And the question is, Is that what Jesus meant? And part of the evidence of the answer to that is, what did the early church do? What did the early church do? And we're going to look at a couple of verses here. Let's start with John chapter 20, verse 21. To try to answer the question, who's been given this assignment to make disciples? Uh, This is after Jesus rose from the dead starting in verse 19, we'll read down to 21. And again, if you have your people Bible along, I hope you, you underline things and highlight things so that these become refreshers for you in the months ahead. That, eve, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And by the way, if you're afraid of people who don't know Jesus, you're good company. These... Men who transformed the planet during their lifetimes. They're, they're locked behind doors because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. He came right through the walls. Peace be with you, he said. Don't, don't you love that line? Jesus is saying, Don't be afraid. Peace be with you. I don't need to be afraid. I, I'm here. I'm with you. Remember the Great Commission? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again he said, peace be with you. And then he said this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Now, the Father sent Jesus on a mission. We know that mission was, yes, to come and teach, but the, the apex of the mission was to come and die for sinners like you and me, be buried, and then raised from the dead. Jesus' mission is now complete. And there is a new mission that is now flowing from his mission. It's it's a mission to reach the world with this incredible message that Jesus died and rose again to offer them hope, to offer them a reconciliation with his father who is at odds with them in their sinful state. What a phenomenal mission. By the way, if I was Jesus, I would have never entrusted me or any of us with this mission. It's too precious. It's too important. But he did. As the father sent me. So I am sending you. You go. You represent me to the world. You tell people about Jesus. Now when, when, when Jesus is sending his, uh, his disciples out. He's less concerned about geography. Than he is Fellowship. And what I mean by that is it's not just that he's sent, sent to a new ad, He's not talking about his disciples just being sent to a new address. He's talking about them being sent out from this, this safe, comfortable environment, namely the people of God. I'm sending you out of this holy huddle to invade the world with this good news, with this gospel, with this hope that these people desperately need, even though most of them don't know it. sending you out from the fellowship. So we talk about our our missionaries, they're they're sent to the other side of the world, to other countries, but you and I are sent out of this place today into the world, to go into the world the rest of the week until we get back together again in this safe and warm and life-giving place. Now the question again is, who's the message for? In front of him that day were ten disciples. Thomas was missing. Judas had taken his life. There are ten disciples there. and Jesus is talking to them. There might have been more people there. We just don't know that. Was it just them? Was it only these men that he's tasking with this responsibility? Now it's true that They made great strides in the world during their ministry. They got to places like India and Iran and Syria and Greece and Asia and Egypt. But you remember what the the scope of the mission was? You'll be my witnesses and you'll be my witnesses starting where? Jerusalem. And then where? Judea. And then where? Samaria and ends of the earth. And there's no way those eleven apostles, plus a few others, accomplished that mission. They didn't live long enough to do it. And so, who takes their place after they're done with their work? They died. Now, who's next? Well, sometimes if you talk with Christians and ask them this question, they think, "Oh, the church professionals. They they do that." So the the pastors and the elders, and of course, Ephesians four talks uh, eleven talks about a. There's an evangelist. There are evangelists as well. Is it, is it limited to them? Look at Acts chapter four. We looked at this passage last night. Acts chapter four, the very, uh, verse thirty one. And we said last night, we're not really sure whether this was a group of just the apostles or if there were uh, all believers there. It's, most, most versions of the Bible, most translations appear to take it as if there was a larger group of believers here than just the apostles. Uh, the word for that, some of your Bibles, uh, ESV, I think says they returned to their friends, um, the the, the Greek text simply says they returned to their own. So it's kind of ambiguous. But it says in verse 31 of this text, if it's a larger group, it says after the prayer meeting, uh, the meeting place shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and then they preached the word of God with boldness. Whoever was there, all of them went out and did it. So 50-50 chance that it was more than just the apostles. Let me take you to what I think is a slam dunk though. Acts chapter 8. Verse one. So this is um, this is right after the Jewish people had s- executed Stephen for um, telling them the good news. Verse one says Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. And in response to this, a great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers, now listen to this. This is really crucial. All the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Remember the scope of the mission? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So everybody scattered around Judea and Samaria except the apostles. They stayed home. They're still in Jerusalem. Verse 2, some devout men came. And buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. But the believers who were scattered, all except the apostles, right? The believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went, not apostles. Not pastors, not church elders, not the evangelists. These are run in the mill people of the church. It almost seems like in Jerusalem they had gotten comfortable, they had forgotten the mission, they're, they're enjoying the fellowship of all these new believers. And God's like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I planned. I've gotten too comfortable. I'm going to move you out so that you can do what my son said to do. And wherever these church members went, where they pitched their tents, if they moved in with relatives, they rented apartments, they were telling people about Jesus, working to make disciples. We said last night the number of Christians, let's just give a, a kind of an estimate, number of Christians before Pentecost was maybe about 800. Fast forward 170 years despite no Mass communications, no instant travel. That number had exploded to about a quarter of a million Christians. And in the next 100 years, from 200 AD to 300 AD, that number had grown from about a quarter of a million to 6 million people or a t- 10% of the population of the Roman Empire. What could explain that kind of possible growth And what is different about that from the massive decline of Christianity in our nation? 50 years ago, 90% of Americans say they're Christian. 75 years ago, that's down to 75%. And today, that number is down to 63%. What, what's happening? The, the early church believed that Jesus was speaking to them, and and I want you to imagine this scene back in John twenty twenty one. Picture the room, locked doors. Jesus suddenly appears. Are you in that circle that day? And Jesus is talking about him sending them. Are you, do you see yourself in that circle of 10 of 11 apostles? Do you, do you see Jesus make eye contact with you? Has Jesus commissioned you to make disciples? Not, not the person beside you or in front of you or behind you. Not the person who's been a believer longer than you have. Not the person who knows more of the Bible than you do. But you? The American church is in decline and we can't just blame Hollywood, social media, higher education, and secularization. The surveys and the polls that I've been watching for 20 years have said virtually the same thing year after year after year after year. And that is that in America, only one out of ten Christians has shared the gospel with anyone in the last year. Any known unbeliever. And I'm one of the nine. We still believe in evangelism, we say, but saying we still believe in evangelism means you're about a decade from not believing in evangelism because what we neglect, we, this generation, what we neglect in one generation is often rejected in the next. The gold standard for surveys on the religious attitudes of Americans is the Pew Research Center. And they discovered about two years ago that of millennial Christians, and that's you if your age is 27 to 42, of millennial Christians, almost all say they feel equipped to talk to someone about Jesus. But almost half say they believe it's wrong to try to persuade someone to leave their faith. Think about that. Almost half of the, the, these are my children's ages, almost half of people in that generation think it's immoral to try to persuade someone to follow Jesus. This is my generation's legacy. Do you see why I'm concerned about our legacy When it comes to churches, what are churches going to be like for our children, and what are our children going to be like? Ten years ago, the former Archbishop of Canterbury said, Christianity is just one generation away from extinction in Great Britain. And what he meant was that the Anglican Church needs to recapture the interest of young people. I don't know what he had in mind, pizza parties. I... All I do know is that I think Jesus would disagree with him and would say, if you will all become disciple-makers, today's church will explode just like the early church did, not just in numbers, but in faith and vitality and joy and deploying people to the streets and to the nations. You know, when Jesus assigned his followers to be witnesses, he didn't start with the ends of the earth. He started with paradise and Ronks and Strasburg and Lancaster and Coatesville and New Holland. So what? Now what? I have been uh, uh, on a... Uh, troubling, convicting, and yet exciting journey about this for about a year and a half. And I want to give you a few suggestions, um, most of which have been ones that I've been uh, doing. The first one is really the essence of this message, and that is if you do not believe that you, you, have been asked by Jesus, commanded by Jesus to make disciples. That's the place to start. Go back over these scriptures. Look at them again. Ask God, am I seeing this right? Am I missing something? And if you become convinced, yes, he meant me, then the only thing that we can do is repent. Believe and repent. Secondly, maybe in your morning prayer, you can pray for people that you'll meet that day and ask God to give you an opportunity to speak for Jesus if it comes. By the way, one of the things that I did as a pastor, I used to always kind of excuse myself and say, I, "I've worked mostly with Christians. I don't really meet many non-Christians." So, um, early 2022, God told me, "Okay, let's see if that's true." Now I want you to go home at the end of every day, and I want you to make a list of the people that you've met that day who you think probably don't know Jesus. After two weeks, I was convinced. I do meet a lot of people that don't know Jesus. One of the things that uh, I did, Dave Barr and I were talking about this last year, and we uh, found out we had both had the same idea that, like, if we talk to someone about Jesus out that we don't know, hadn't met before, it'd be nice to have some way to have some follow-up with them. And so we decided both going to make, like, little business cards and be able to hand them out to people. So... Uh, we, we challenged each other to do it by last Thanksgiving. He succeeded. I failed. I got done this summer. But my little card just says, uh, I, I paid 20 bucks, 22 bucks for these online. I got 100 of them. On the front, it says, Jesus died for it. Underneath, it says, many issues, one problem. On the back, it has my name. Beneath that, Jesus follower, Pennsylvania, and then my phone number. I don't have my address because I don't want unstable people showing up at my door. So you might do something like that. Read a book on evangelism, because I, I think that's the piece, that's the side of the coin that we're most adverse to. Um, I've got a couple of suggestions here. Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out, Evangelism, The Way You Were Born to Do It, uh, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer, great classic. And this is one of my personal favorites, Taking Men Alive by Jim Wilson. Sounds kind of gross, but... Um, he's a he was a veteran personal evangelist and I just am challenged and encouraged by things I read in there podcasts, just put an evangelism um, on your internet search line and podcasts, articles and so forth maybe if you're not a person who has a daily worship time that's the place to start You're not going to be convinced and convicted by the Holy Spirit if you are not looking at the Word and reading this over and over. And the other thing is, by reading the Scriptures over and over, you'll be better prepared to also help a new believer start his or her life with Jesus. There's one other thing that you can pray about this. I'm starting a group in January Um, It's going to be an experimental group. I I tell the people we're we're going to be lab rats to see if we can do something together as a small group of people to help each other grow in making disciples. And uh, all the people who have said yes so far are terrified, and I'm terrified. So I think that's healthy. And if it succeeds, if it's effective, we'll reproduce those kinds of groups in the years ahead, and maybe that'll be something that you'll eventually be part of. Father, I I want so bad to be the person that Jesus called me to be. My weaknesses, my sin, my pride, and a thousand other things stand in the way, and so I pray that you would help me be faithful and for all my brothers and sisters here this morning I pray the same for them that they would just pray about taking one step just one step toward disciple making and for them to really believe even in doing that that you want to you want to answer them you want to help them you, you are far more invested in their success than they are and for them to be confident to move out in faith as a result in Jesus name